Good evening. It is good to be together. If you're a guest, uh, again, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. When we think about many of the good things coming up in this coming week, I want to encourage you to be prayerful about it. And I want to encourage you to go out in just the next couple of days and contact somebody. Go by their house or, or give them a call or send them a message. But invite them to come Sunday and especially somebody that used to be a part of the Lord's church. Invite them to come home. Invite them to come back to a day that ought to be a really good day, but to let them know that they're missed. I would think that every one of us knows more than one. I would know several. And I just want to encourage you to take action upon it because it's just such a natural invite. Hey, it's homecoming. We'd love for you to come home again. How could that be something negative? Uh, please be prayerful about that and please do something about that. And now's a perfect time if you need to take some of the postcards that's out or however you want to do that invitation, but please do that over the next couple of days. We mentioned this morning the, the very difficult situation in South Sudan and uh, the rebel army kidnapping young men and forcing them to fight. And, uh, and then our brothers and sisters as refugees now in refugee camps in neighboring countries, let's begin tonight with a prayer on their behalf. And as I do that, um, I'll probably mention something like this in the prayer, but I just want you to know that uh, uh, kind of where it came from. The day that Santino Har was baptized, you guys surrounded him and talked to him for a long time. And and when he was finally leaving the building, he walked up to me in the foyer. And it was very intentional. And uh, he walked up and he said, David Shannon, you have to go with me to South Sudan. And I said, really? I said, what are we going to do there? And he's still, he's not smiling. And he says, my country is full of war and they kill each other. And until we take them Jesus, that will never stop. And ultimately that's the problem today in that country and in our country and in our homes and in our life where there is great conflict most of the time, there's an absence of Jesus. Somewhere Jesus' way is not being done. And so let's, let's pray about that and let's be thankful that Jesus is such a great answer. Our most gracious God, we thank you for adopting us into your family, giving us a place in your church. We thank you for the blessing. And our prayer is we'll love you and we'll love your church and we'll never take each other for granted and we'll not take you, our heavenly father, for granted. And God, we're mindful of our brothers and sisters, not just beside us tonight, but around the world that love you and they're hurting. Uh, they've been driven out of their home, God, and you know the situation far better than we do, but we ask you to bless them. We ask you to bring peace to them tonight. We pray that the families and the children can feel and be safe. 
And we pray most of all that their faith will be greater than anything that they face. And God, we pray that the great work that is happening in South Sudan right now of, of teaching Jesus would just continue. We pray that it would flourish and that your kingdom would prosper there. We pray that it would prosper so much so that a new generation would be raised, a new culture would be found in that community and that war could subside. God, we pray that you bring Santino Har back to us safely. We ask you to bring his family to him in America safely. And we pray your blessings upon especially the aspects of the process that seem to have been complicated. And we pray, God, that you can raise the valleys and level the hills and you can straighten the curves and that you can make this expedient process. God, we thank you for our church family here. And we pray that today and this evening as we open your word, it will have been good for us to hear from you. And we pray that we have humble hearts to be ready to receive your message. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. I thought I knew the plans, but then realized I didn't know them at all. When I walked up on third floor this afternoon, I was blown away. Uh, I've also been asked to ask you if you can refrain yourself from not going up there right now. There's much under construction. Please don't go up there yet. But when you get the opportunity, I would be really shocked if you said, oh yeah, this, you're going to walk up there and you're going to be like, are you kidding me? It's amazing. It's amazing. So carve you out some time Wednesday night. Uh, Sunday's just going to be so hectic. And so all of us, it would be really good if we could spend our time other times. Uh, we may send out through uh messaging some way, whether it be a phone tree, maybe not, some other way, maybe some other times on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, maybe that you could stop in, maybe we could have it open for two hour blocks or whatever, but it's really neat. It's, it's the type of, of displays and collections. I think you will think I'm just going to walk through there in five minutes and then you're going to look down and say, where did that hour go? It's really pretty cool. So look forward to that. There's so many good things coming up. Look forward to it all. Let's get on to something real important tonight. Let's think about the idea first as we get into this, the, the difference of reformation and restoration. And, and I'm not going to dive deeply into that, but I just want to remind you, like one of the great reformation movements that began in Europe that, that became known as the Protestant Reformation was in the early 1500s. And, and I admire the man's conviction, although I, I don't agree with where he landed, but he looked at what he thought was becoming a very corrupt Catholic church. And, and he thought that morally and doctrinally, they were becoming corrupt. And instead of just going along with it and saying, that's the religion I am, and I'm just going to keep doing that. He wrote 95 Thesis, and, and he went there in Wittenberg, Germany with a mallet and a nail, and and he nailed it on the door outside the church. You have to admire someone that looks at something that is wrong and just doesn't go with status quo. Well, everybody else is acting like it's okay. I'm, I'm just going to act like it's okay too. Restoration, though, is not the same as reformation. 
You see what his goal was to, was to reform the Catholic church, so to speak. Here's a church that's not, in his opinion, doing things the way it should have been done, and I'm gonna reform that. And, and so now, even though he didn't want it to be called that, now his followers call themselves Lutherans. And, and, but think about this. Restoration is built around the idea of saying, I want to restore truth. There is a church that exists in the New Testament that belonged to Christ. And she was born out of truth. And any time that church got off kelter, the way that they were corrected by the apostles was by truth being presented to them again. Now, sometimes you will hear brethren sarcastically say, oh, so, oh, you want to get involved in restoration? Oh, which, which church you want to restore in the New Testament? You want to restore the church of Corinth where the man had his, his mother, his, his, what am I trying to say? You know what I'm trying to say. He, he had his father's wife. Is that the church? You know, the church that, that the, the women were speaking out in worship and they couldn't even take the Lord's Supper the right way? Is that the church you want to restore? Or what about the church in Galatia where they still were, were divided among the Jews and the Gentiles? Is, is that the church you want to restore? Look, that's as silly as it gets. Of course, we're not out to restore the congregation at Corinth. Of course, we're not out to restore a certain congregation in Galatia. But let me ask you this. When the Corinthian church had things that were sexually immoral going on, they had problems with headship and authority, and they had problems in the way they partook of the Lord's Supper. Do you remember what they did, what Paul did restore back to them? It's truth. Every time those particular issues were addressed with, the way you're doing it is wrong. Let me tell you the truth about how to handle this. And so today, just as we look this morning in 1 Timothy 3rd chapter, the church rises out of truth. The church holds up truth. We restore truth. You name any moral issue or topic. You name any doctrinal aspect of the church and say, well, what do we need to do? Go back to truth. That's going to be the answer every time. Restore the truth. How should the church be organized? Just go back to the truth. What should we teach about salvation? Just go back to the truth. How should we live in our families? Go back to the truth. And that's the plea of restoration. I mentioned to you this morning, and well, I was about to mention to you, and we ran out of time. We're, we're going to look at a couple of passages and then land in Nehemiah. If you will, go with me to Leviticus, the 26th chapter. I'm going to do a couple of passages kind of quickly here to set up something that, the reason I'm going to do it quickly is because I assume that you really, really know this, okay? But... But I want us to go over it to, to allow God, if you will, reading from his word to drive this point home. Number one, I want you to see the fact that God has always expected obedience. And if God gives us a law or command, that's the truth. God expects us to obey his word. He expects us to obey the truth. And this is Old Testament as well as New Testament. Here's an example in the Old Testament. And we could read hundreds of these throughout the scriptures. But here's one, Leviticus 26 and 14. But if you do not obey me, and notice the emphasis here, whether or not we're going to obey. 
and do not observe all the commandments. How many God did you want the children of Israel to observe? All of them. And if you despise my statutes, and if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you and I will even appoint terror over you. And then for several verses, he tells the punishment he's going to give if they do what? If they simply do not obey him. God, how big is it to you whether or not we obey you? And God would say everything. Now I'm not discounting grace in that, but let me tell you something grace won't cover. Grace won't cover intentional sin. God, I am not gonna obey you I'm going to do things my way. And then when I get done doing things my way, then I will ask for a prayer of forgiveness. So I'm going to work. The heart of submission. God, I'll do your will. Let's see this in the New Testament. Turn over to Matthew, the seventh chapter, 21, 22, and 23. This again is just one of many examples. This is Jesus' words. It's towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to highly, he's speaking about highly religious people. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So these are people that were praying and, and he says, but they're not gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice, what do we have to do? But he who does the will of my father, that's getting back to the obedience. Are we gonna do his will? Are we gonna obey? Now notice how religious these were in 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And notice what he says in 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who what? You who practice lawlessness. Now go back one verse. Who are these people? If they were your neighbors, you would probably say, that's some of the most religious neighbors I've ever had and it's some of the best neighbors I've ever had. They go around all the time teaching in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And let me tell you, we're talking about the word marvel. This is a very kinship to that word marvel. They do wonderful things. In other words, they're kind of distinguished in all the good that they go about and do. <laughs> they are such good neighbors. What did Jesus say about them? Lawless. How could they be Lawless because there were parts in their life where they were not submitting to the will of God. He expected them to obey the will of the Father. And even though they were highly religious, probably sincere, they were told, depart from me. Why? You're lawless. God expects obedience. There is no way for a religious group to be able to say, oh, I, I know that we don't do that exactly like the Bible teaches, but hey, it's, it's not a big deal. No, it, it's a very big deal. When we know a teaching of God and we won't submit to it, that's not only true for a church, that's true for individuals. God expects obedience. Now, we mentioned this this morning, but even though he does expect obedience, people don't, back up slide, people don't always obey. And so we mentioned this this morning. 
What happens if people stop obeying in large numbers? What happens if they do it for long periods of time? What happens if, if even while they do this, they're very sincere, they're very religious? And it is amazing how many people start to doubt whether or not obedience is really necessary and really important based upon that. If you will, look with me to Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. And as you're turning there, uh, I mentioned in one of the services this morning, and I think I failed to mention another, but uh, our teenage VBS, we invited Dan Chambers to come over and speak one of the days. And he did a tremendous job. And much of what we're covering today was a topic that he also spoke about. He's written a book entitled Church in the Shape of Scripture. It's a really, really good book if you want to read more uh, about the topic of church in the shape of scripture. But in one of the opening chapters, he really does a great job of, of just bringing out the teachings of Nehemiah the eighth chapter. And so as we think about this, uh, I want to show you some things uh, kind of scanning in the first half of the chapter and then slow down a little bit in the last half of the chapter. Look in the first three verses. By the way, what's happened here is the children of Israel, finally after 70 years of being that remnant group, uh, Babylonian captivity, now the Persians are reigning and they are gracious enough to let the, the small group of the Israelites return back to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, even help fund the temple. And I I know some of you know this biblically, but some of you may not know this. You know, just because you build the temple back doesn't mean that people know God anymore. Think about a group of people that have been away and they've been in a foreign land. And now they come back and they build the temple and they don't really know how to practice Judaism anymore. And so now not only do they have to construct a building, Ezra was one of the prophets has to spend time teaching them. So Nehemiah calls him in and tells him to bring the book of the law. You see there in the eighth chapter, we're just gonna scan a few things. See in the verse one, all the people are gathered together. See towards the end, he told Ezra to bring the book of the law. And, and he did, and we see there that the assembly was made up of men and women in verse two, and they gathered on the first day of the seventh month. And notice this, they gathered in front of the water gate from the morning until midday. And when we look down in verse five, the people stood up, probably out of reverence or respect for the word, but imagine that coming early in the morning and standing to the middle of the day, and they just wanna hear the word of God read. Well, when in verse six, when they were hearing this, they would answer amen, amen, and they worship God. And then it was read to them even with a greater clarity in eight and nine, they begin to weep. And, and then they were urged not to be sorry because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then I want us to talk about day two. And here's where we'll slow down a little bit in verse 13. If you have your Bibles, we're reading verse 13. So the people are really starting to hear about the law. They cried the first day because they realized, wow, what we've been hearing read, we hadn't been doing. And, and so in verse 13, now on the second day, the heads of the father's house of all the people with the priest and the Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to what? Understand the words of the law. Now this is huge right here. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses 
that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Feast of the tabernacle. They, they were supposed to dwell in booths. Now pause there for just a moment. I want you to notice that word, the third word there in 14. They found. If they found it, what does that mean? It had been lost. So there was a doctrine about, hey, when we celebrate this particular feast, we're supposed to be going out and building temporary huts, little booths for us to live in. And, and a part of that was, was to think back in the 40 years in the wilderness, how they lived in a temporary situation there. And notice they found this. And you say, well, I wonder how long the children of Israel had gone not practicing this law that was written. Well, if you have your Bible open, you can skip down to verse 17. And you see the last half of 17, that it had been since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day of the children of Israel had not done so. It was all the way back to Joshua's days since they'd done this. It's close to a thousand years. Big group of people, children of Israel. Big religious group of people. Believed in God, perhaps at some times during that thousand years, maybe sincerely, but they started reading the word of God and they found something. Wow, here is a command to do something that we don't do. Did you know that during this feast we're supposed to be living in huts? What? Yeah, it's right here in the word of God. Did, did you hear Ezra read that? We're supposed to be doing that. Oh, you know, if my parents and grandparents didn't do it, and we're, we're going back a thousand years. If that many people don't do it, <laughs> it can't really be anything to it. But it's the word of God. Oh, but we're sincere and we believe in God. Do you think God really matters whether or not we build the hut or don't build the hut? When you study God's word, what's your heart towards studying God's word? When's the last time you've studied God's word and you've gotten up from that study and you have changed your life because of what you have found? And if you can't remember the last time that's happened, you really need to check out your spiritual condition. The church is to be made up of people and the church itself is supposed to be a group that goes back to truth. And when truth is found, because oftentimes people do not obey, and when we find out that we're doing something that is not right, the question is, so let's go to the very next verse. Let's see what they did. Look what they did. And that they should announce and proclaim in all of their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Now I know on the screen that last line's not there. That's not really good, is it, when the, the phrase you're trying to emphasize isn't there. It's in the Bible, though. 
And so what was their answer to that? Their answer was, we're going to send out an announcement. We're going to send out to everybody. What are you going to have them to do? We're just going to tell them to do what God said to do. Well, you think people are going to do it? We're going to tell them as it is written. When we look in scripture, I want to remind you of the point that we studied this morning, just kind of as a point of emphasis for closing. Do you remember when we looked in Acts, the second chapter this morning? And remember in verse 38, when they asked, what shall we do? They were told what to do, repent and be baptized. But then you remember over in 41, you remember who obeyed that? Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. I want to encourage you in your personal Bible study over the next several days and maybe even for the rest of your life. I want you to notice how many times in scripture the emphasis is placed upon it is written or the Lord said or some kind of emphasis on the word. Why is that? in the Bible so many times. Because that is who we are. We are people that seek the will of the Father. And in everything in our life, we ought to want to know, what does God say about that? You know, this morning we began by saying, Being told as a child over and over, you can become anything. You can do anything. It's just not truthful. But what if we could truly grow up, our teenagers, like I hopefully we have a a whole section over here full of teenagers like this. What if we could grow up our teenagers so that they're not seeking some kind of personal identity that's self-centered? What if they truly are saying, I just want to go to school tomorrow. I want to do the will of God. And when my peers are pulling me to do something and they're, they're telling me to jump into something, my first thought is going to be, is that the will of God? Because if it's not the will of God, it's a really easy decision to make. I don't care how much you laugh at me. I don't care how much you, you mock me. It doesn't matter what you do. If it's not the will of God, that's not who I am. I'm someone that finds my identity through Christ. And what if every man and woman went to their homes and their workplaces tomorrow, and what if they lived like that? And when your boss asks you to do something unethical, you don't really have a decision to make, do you? You made that the day you became a Christian. I'm sorry, boss. I I don't do things like that. I'll fire you. Do what you need to do but that's not who I am. Why? Because I know what the word of the Lord is on that topic. That's why we need to study scripture. We need to know what the word of the Lord says. But then what good does it do to study? If once we find, like the people in Nehemiah's day, when we find the truth and we shrug our shoulders and justify some kind of it, excuse 
instead of humbly submitting. Tonight, if there's anything we can do to help you take steps closer to God, as we're about to sing this song of encouragement, I just want to remind you that we are not extending an invitation to some kind of plan of, that you ought to submit your life to from man. The only invitation that, that we offer to you right now is really an invitation that's open all the time. And that's the Lord's invitation. It's just right now is a formal time and right now is a time that the church family is gathered and there's a lot of people that could support you and pray with you and, and encourage you. So the Lord's invitation is being extended and, and if you haven't submitted your life to the will of the Father and you have found things in scripture that you know your life is in contradiction with, why not resolve it with God tonight? Why not leave here with the peace that passes understanding? If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.